Hey everyone and welcome to High Performance Pathways. This is season two, episode number four. I'm your host, Court Whitman. Today's podcast is sponsored by the NoCast app. Use the NoCast app to save snippets of podcasts as digital notes so you never forget all those thoughts, ideas, or aha moments that come to you while listening to a podcast just like mine. You can find NoCast in the Apple Store or Google Play. And if you enjoy this podcast and my conversation with my guest, please explore more about me at courtwhitman.com. For all new listeners out there, High Performance Pathways is a purpose-built and specially selected collection of someone's experience as they discuss how they understand, discover, and chase high performance in their life. This content is collected during a one-on-one interview and then shared with you. Why? Because I believe that everyone has a different path to high performance and hearing about other people's journeys is informative and it's inspiring. So during each episode of High Performance Pathways, it's my intent to do five things for you, the listener. Number one, I'm going to connect you to someone else so you can build relationships. Number two, I'm going to question so that together we can understand. Number three, I'm going to share to raise perspectives. Number four, I'm going to teach to increase competence. And number five, I'm going to inspire you to trigger your growth as a listener. Now, one additional note to cover as you continue listening to this podcast. It's raw. What do I mean? Hey, we do no post-edit work on this show. We record live and we deliver that authentic conversation that occurs that we laid down together to you. So, bear with us if there's a little bit of an interruption, right? We're just working it out. Now, I'm stoked about my guest today. He's a friend of mine, Andy Reese. So let me, let me go through Andy's bio, and I'm prepping you here. It's a long one because this guy's incredible. And then I want to give a little bit of, of extra color commentary uh, on our relationship. So here we go. My guest, Andy Reese. Lieutenant Colonel Andy Reese is a U.S. Army officer. He's a mental performance coach. He's a management consultant, a speaker, and an author. Andy is knowledgeable and experienced in coaching and helping leaders and their teams to consistently achieve optimal performance. Something I love, right? High performance, optimal performance, one and the same. That's what I'm chasing in my life. A lot of the listeners that check in here on this show, they're chasing the same damn thing. Now, Annie's expertise is specifically in evidence-based best practices of sport and performance psychology with an emphasis on mental toughness and stress inoculation. Annie's additional areas of expertise include effective communication, team building, design thinking, curriculum design, and individual and organizational assessment. Originally from Oakdale, California, Andy attended the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York, where he earned his bachelor's degree in legal studies in 2001. He was a fullback, yeah he was, and a two-time letterman for the Army football team. Upon graduation from West Point, Andy entered the Army and has served for 20 years to include a variety of leadership positions that are highlighted by three combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and serving five years with two elite special forces units as a joint terminal attack controller and expert in targeting. Andy also taught in the Army, so he's a teacher, and he served as an instructor at West Point's Center for Enhanced Performance, where he collaborated with the University of Pennsylvania to develop human performance and resilience programs for the Army and the Air Force. And later, Andy went on and served as a guest instructor at the Air Force Academy's Department of Behavioral Science and Leadership. Andy's current assignment 
is as a director of an academic department at university-level schoolhouse responsible for preparing thousands of mid-level Army leaders for next-level assignments. And he contributes to local human performance programs, research studies, and he supports the 75th Ranger Regiment as a mental performance coach. And he holds a master's degree from Argos University in exercise psychology with an emphasis on sports and performance. And he holds several certifications to include executive education from Stanford University's Global School of Business and is in the process of becoming a certified mental performance consultant from the Association of Applied Sports Psychology. And he's contributed to several research studies and peer-reviewed publications regarding the application of mental skill training in the military. And Andy's an advisor to several veteran service organizations committed to helping veterans and their family members. Along with his wife and four kids, Andy volunteers in youth athletics, just like me. We love that stuff. He also volunteers for Boy Scouts of America. He's actually a, an Eagle Scout uh, going way back. And he serves a local and surrounding community in any way that he can there at Fort Benning, Georgia. In addition, you know, Andy and I connected about six months ago, and I was his coach, right? And so uh, Andy was selected for high-performance veterans transition assistance through his application and admission into the Commit Foundation. And so we've spent some detailed, intimate time together, and I'm so thankful that he made himself available to connect with us today and bring his perspectives to the show and for the listeners. So Andy, man, Stoked to have you. Thanks so much for checking in with us today to share your perspectives on high performance. Thanks, Court. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm really honored, and uh, you know how highly I think of you, and uh, I'm really appreciative personally for you being instrumental in my transition journal and uh, inspiring me to pursue the next uh, leg of my journey uh, as a coach and teaching the art and science of coaching, so thank you. Yeah, man. Hey, brother. It's, it's no mistake about it, right? You, you were specially selected. There's no one else that, that I'd rather spend my time with here this afternoon. And really with just a reflection on, on your journey, right, which I think is, is inspiring. And I think it inspires others. I, I think whenever we can listen to someone else's story, sometimes things just happen and you've got an incredible story. So, hey, man, we're stoked to have you here. I'd, I'd love to begin, you know, with sport because I love it. Right, And there's so many athletes that I interview on this podcast because I think that they need to be interviewed. I think that we need to continue to be advocates for how critical sport can be at a young age in the developmental journey of just people. Um, and, and, we, and when we look at you know, where that started and where their career went, I think it's a really convincing argument. So sport, man, and some insight into your journey specifically what, what might be some of your earliest memories of the sport? And I, know, I, I know you got them, right? Because you played at the college level. So just, just to get the listeners some insight, man, to you, um, what are some of those earliest memories of sport for you, Andy? Yeah, that's, uh, so I, like you said, I grew up in Northern California, um, you know, from a, a large family. I got four sisters. Um, my parents were not athletes, but I think my parents knew that I know now and you and I can appreciate is that sports is just this incredible laboratory uh, for human performance and teaches you so many skills that transfer to other aspects of your life. And so, you know, we were all uh, into athletics, even though my parents themselves weren't athletes, they, you know, uh, they put us into sports and that really started with soccer. 
Uh, as you remember, you know, us growing up as children of the 80s, um, the youth soccer was starting to become really popular in the U.S. and definitely was that way where, where I was from. And and so I, I started with soccer. My dad was my coach. Uh, we were always, so you, you know, I have a funny, the listeners will recognize my the funny spelling of my last name. It's a R-I-I-S-E, it's Norwegian. And so uh, my dad's really proud of our family's heritage going back to Norway and being coming from Vikings. So our team was always the Vikings every single year. <laughs> and, and I think, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, we were the Vikings, whether you liked it or not, but I, I, but my dad will tell you because he was trying to emphasize the warrior mindset. So I think my dad knew something that I didn't at that time. That's incredible, man. That is freaking incredible. And I, I'm actually kind of really surprised here in this moment that, uh, neither of your parents played, played sports or were athletes. Um, I, I think you're the first guy that I've had, or, or girl for that matter, on the show with that sort of a perspective. Um, man, I tip my hat. Go freaking Vikings, brother, that your, your parents, uh, you know, kind of were, were good. Because I tell you, there's a fear for me. Like, I love music. I can't carry a tune. I can't sing crap. I cannot play a freaking single instrument. But I would love for my kids to do piano or guitar. But it's tough for me to kind of step into that unknown space. And so here we are, you, that not only did you play at a young level, but you also played in college. And I'm going to talk about that for a second. But real quick, uh, you talked about soccer and youth soccer. And good gracious, that's exactly what I played growing up. So for all the soccer folks out there listening, you know, you're really, I would say, maybe probably the, the birthplace of sport. Because when my kids sure. were four and five, we can go out and kick a ball around. It's, it's easy to kind of step into that. So if, if you're wondering as a parent, you know, where do I get started? If maybe your parents were like Andy's, I'd say, hey, just go have your kids kick a ball around and start with soccer. Quick story, man. When I was eight years old, brother, I almost died. Uh, I was in, in the hospital for 46 days because I had an infection in my brain. It was killing me. This is no sh a no shit story. I was paralyzed at my whole body. And so emergency surgeons ripped open my head, sucked out a disease, saved my life. And then the first thing I ever wanted to do after that at eight was go play soccer. And, and you'll get a kick out of this, Andy. I had to put a bicycle helmet on my head to go out. Oh, and my play. gosh. And so I got even pictures of it, man. Just imagine how laughable that would be right now for a kid to show up on the soccer field with a bicycle helmet on. Yep, I was that guy, man. So uh, anyway. I need to see pictures of that. You definitely do, man. All right, hey, let's, let's continue here, man, and let's talk more about sport. And specifically, let, let's take it on to the college level, right? And so I know we're, we're, we're going fast through your youth, but uh, – you know, you played at the military academy as a fullback. Why, man? Why go there? Why go there from California? And how did that happen? That's a great question. So it really, um, it wasn't on purpose, first of all. So I, I didn't even know what West Point was. West Point was a place up in the Sierra Nevada mountains where we cut our Christmas trees uh, every single <laughs> year. So I, I had no idea. Um, but it kind of starts off with it. You know, so I was um, played the big three, I guess you'd say, in terms of sports. So started off with soccer my first love became baseball but then as I got into playing uh you know full contact tackle football as it were uh at kind of the um youth level uh, and then into high school that's really where I started to come into my own and I, and I realized that I had some skills and some talent but I, I was a late bloomer into football so there's um in football is, is king in California you know probably uh close second to maybe Texas and I would say that uh, the talent pool is just uh, massive there, too. So I was good. Uh, I don't think I was great. And so I didn't get the attention of uh, at the time the, the Pac-10 schools 
specifically like the schools in my backyard, like the Stanford's and the Cal or even Fresno State, um, which is, you know, high caliber programs at the Division A level. I got some scholarship offers from, you know, some Ivy League schools and some small schools on the West Coast. Um, but uh, I really um, was encouraged by my coaches and my family that I could play at the highest level. So that was my goal. Um, and uh, tragedy would actually, you know, be a, a catapult to, to lead me to the academy. And so in 1994, um, I uh, sophomore in high school, my, my brother-in-law, so my sister, uh, oldest sister, Tiffany, was um, in the Army, got commissioned in the late 80s, was a Desert Storm veteran with her husband, Christopher Walter, and uh, he was infantry officer. Uh, my sister had just gotten out. They had just had their first child. Uh, we're stationed at Fort Hood, Texas, where he was an aviator. He switched from being an infantry officer, an army ranger, to being uh, a Blackhawk pilot. Uh, mm. He was just getting ready. He was just getting ready to take command uh, of his first unit there at Fort Hood. They were coming back from a hail and farewell for you non-military event uh, listeners out there. That's basically like a, a welcome and social event at, in the evening time. And uh, there was some uh, folks who were casing the neighborhood out there in Colleen, Texas, and uh, pulled a gun on on him and my sister. Um, one thing led to another, um, and, and my, my brother-in-law was shot, and he died right in front of my sister. And uh, it was a massive tragedy in my family. She came home um, and couldn't live by herself, was just really rocked by that. And, uh, mm, and I'll say just as, as a side, she, she's an amazing person and is has been really this, uh, uh, as I've become this kind of expert in resilience, she's been my model of what that should look like. Um, but that tragedy brought me back from a Catholic school in another town 30 minutes away where my sisters went to school and helped them get into four-year universities and then brought me back home. And so I switched high schools, had to start all over again, prove myself. Um, you know, I was an okay football player, you know, my, at the JV level, but then uh, got the opportunity and just really started excelling. But over the over the years that I started really excelling on the football field and showing potential prowess to play at the collegiate level, uh, my, my brother-in-law's really good army buddies and my sister-in-law's friends would come back. And a couple of those guys were just incredibly influential in me and my, my next journey to play at the next level. So one of them who was uh, Chris's stick buddy, his name is brother Ratliff. who's just been a long time friend. Shout out to brother. Um, he had played football at army um, and it was obviously a graduate. And he um, he knew a guy named Mike Sullivan who would later go on and win Super Bowls with uh, um, as a coach with the New York Giants. Um, and I think he's still back with the Giants now. He was the West Coast recruiter, was a college teammate at Army with brother, and got him my tape. You know, back in the day, the VHS tapes, we didn't have this high-speed huddle thing online. So, you know, snail <laughs> mailed my, my VHS grainy video footage of me playing fullback at Oakdale High School, and then the rest, it, it just went from there. And so um, – so I went to a prep school for a year. Um, and so my, I was terrible at math. I did court. I didn't even take math my senior year. I was so bad at it. And I was, uh, so my SAT scores were not good enough math wise to get me into West Point, but I was also 17. So it worked out to kind of be a retro year to go to the U S military Academy preparatory school. And, um, so everybody knows every single one of the, um, service academies has a preparatory school. At the time it was at Fort Mom in New Jersey. And so, I went there and I, I played for a year at the JUCO level um, and then prepared academically and militarily to, to go into the, uh, go to West Point after that. Yeah, man. What, a, what an incredible story and so many different influences there for you and that decision, um, that desire to play the tragedy to your family, the influence of second and third, you know, removed people upon your life. 
And, you know, you didn't mention it, but, but maybe there just was something also inside your heart that said, yeah, man, I want to do this for Tiff. Um, my words, I'm sorry, you called her Tiffany. So I don't want to kind of. No, slam I call her, her Tiff. Name. That's perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's perfect. You know, but so, so a lot to that story, bottom line, it seems to be that it was, uh, a bit of an emotional decision for you. And I think that's kind of how the world goes. We're, we're human beings. We're emotional people. And sometimes that's how we make decisions. And of course, the opportunity. So, hey, if, in this moment, man, could you maybe recall any memories of playing in an army? Yeah, absolutely. Just uh, ripped off on your previous comment. I mean, uh, one of the big reasons why I joined the army uh, that I didn't mention was because I wanted to finish the business that Chris started. And uh, so that's been a big, inspiration for me and actually every day that i go to work he has a brick over here in the ranger memorial and i park 100 yards exactly from you know uh, his that brick and so I, I give him a salute every day to work and uh, as far as you know finishing the mission and things he didn't get his chance to do um but to answer your question uh specifically yeah you know it's i have so many great memories of playing football at army i mean first of all um the brotherhood and the fraternity that i'm a part of is just uh I knew it at the time uh, and had really invested heavily in it. But still, some of my best friends today are those guys that I play football with. I think collective experiences that you go through and playing at the academies, which, you know, I know it's got to be similar at VMI with your experiences, uh, is very difficult and um, it's well documented. But I, to me, it was the mundanity of the day to day excellence that we were going through the grind, um, the, the, the good times, the laughs, the hard times. Uh, those were the things that really stand out in my mind. Uh, of course, you know, everything at West Point is all about beating Navy. So that's the first <laughs> highlight. Yeah, the first highlight, which, you know, hey, we won't talk about the score this last December. We're already moving forward. We're, we're, on, to, we're on to 2020, as Bill Belichick would say. Yeah, um, we got to be after so, that one, that's for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, uh, that was painful. But for me, you know, I endured that for, you know, four or five years. And so we only beat Navy once. That was my sophomore year in the Meadowlands. Um, I did not dress for that particular game, so that was a, a great highlight uh, of mine. Um, and then playing in the 100th Army-Navy game was, was absolutely uh, an amazing experience. 100,000 people nationally televised. Uh, that was a rush that I will not forget ever. It's still, still very vivid. I get, I get you know, um, a physiological response just kind of thinking about it. But for me, it was, um, you know, competing every day with my teammates. A lot of stuff in the offseason. Um you know, and, and I can share stuff about that, but it, it that was really the little things with my in the experience, collective experience I went through with my teammates that really stand out to me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I got a lot of folks on here that I interview. Uh, had a guy just last week who was a cross country runner for for the academy, and and you know Duke football players and just you know basketball players from Liberty. And every time I ask him this question, it's it's typically I remember my teammates and the things that we did together that really sucked. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's it's not as much. Yeah, this one game when this one play happened. Nope. You know, because those things happen, but it's it it's I don't know. Maybe it's just our brain, and maybe you can comment on this. But I think you know uh, I certainly would would be a guy that advocates that um, our brain uh, is a sponge for the negativity, and in some cases, those experiences in our life, the ones that were really hard and challenging, and it's a bit of a Teflon for all the successes. Uh, in some cases, and it's harder for us to be accepting of, of those things. But you did call out the Navy victory, and I appreciate you sharing that. <laughs> hey, my dad played at Army. 
My first Army yep. Navy game that I went to see was there at uh, Lincoln Field in Philly three years ago, and we were sitting in the end zone when we kicked uh, the winning field goal and I guess what we'll call the snow game, which when the boys were wearing the 10th Mountain whiteout jerseys. I don't think they knew there was mm-hmm. me that much snow that day because it was actually the smo- mm-hmm. snow in Philly. But it's just a great experience. And so anybody listening, if you love sport at all, and if you don't even like football, I'll encourage you to look up at some point in your life uh, going to the Army-Navy football game because it's just something the country rallies around and it's phased during the season at a very specific time because of that. So, hey, thanks for sharing that, Andy. Let, let's transition now in this moment, man, and talk about your time in the Army. Um, I'm curious, man. You, you, you're still in the Army, uh, and, and you've served for a long time, right, 20 years. So what, what kind of inspired you to make the commitment of, of 20 years to this line of work in the Army? Well, first of all, it, it wasn't planned that way. It was never in the cards for me. Um, you know, if you would have asked me, you know, when I was a cadet, going through the struggle, um, and I was a terrible cadet, uh, I had an inkling in my mind that I had potential to be a good officer. But in that struggle, if you would ask me if I would have done a 20-year career, or if you would ask my closest friends that I played football with that I would outlast them all in terms of my time in service, they would laugh at you. Um, so I was, uh, I would probably be voted the, the first to get out after five years if I even made it to first lieutenant. Um, so first of all, I've always kept, my, <laughs> I've always kept my options open. I mean, it's never been something, and that may seem like I, I haven't been committed, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, so the, the first thing is to translate, build the bridge between football and the army is that. I found that the Army very quickly became the closest thing to football that I could find in life and as a profession. Absolutely. So many, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just want to say absolutely, man. I mean, I think that I was a walk-on in college when I played, so I wasn't even recruited. But I, but I had so much fun in the non-traditional classroom of sport and that competitive experience, I didn't want it to end, so I walked on. I earned a scholarship my sophomore year, but, you know, and to that end, it was like, what can I do next in my adult life to continue that edge? And the Army delivered on that for me as well. Continue, please. No, you're, you're exactly right. And so it's, it's ironic that a good friend of mine, Bernie Holiday, who's the head sports psych for the Pirates, you know, he made the observation that military leaders have all these books on their shelf about uh, leaders from sport. And, and then, you know, you know, all these coaches on athletics have these books from leaders in the military. And there's so much cross-pollinization um, and, and commonalities. So to me, it was the ultimate team sport. Um, and I was in a unit that was really competitive. They competed in everything we did when we were training and learning of our craft in terms of, hey, how to shoot, move, and communicate. And, and we also had incredible coaches uh, that, were, that really pushed us out of our comfort zone. Uh, we were really close, had that camaraderie. And so – you know, we went to combat for the first time. It was, it was almost like, you know, leading up to the season. Um, and so, and then it, it is game on. And that was my first real taste of combat and what that was like. And so I think that the, I got first taste and that first experience that I had really stayed with me because the leaders then formed this example of what I wanted to be as a senior leader. With guys like Chuck Rogerson, who I, uh, my first battalion commander, and Brian Morris, my first battery commander, and, and there's so many others uh, that were influential on me, you know, and then I just, I really enjoyed it. And I think the other thing that I, I took into account is because things got harder as I went along and you can certainly appreciate it. 
sure. and, and all the units that you've been and spending a career in the military and elite units. Um, but I, you know, things get infinitely harder to serve because being a family man and a really good father that I wanted to be, that my dad was to me, was incongruent with service at the time. And so figuring out how to put my family first, but the mission always were sometimes in conflict with each other. And so how, I, you know, so the reason why I kept my options open always was because at any time that the service in the military kept me from being the man that I wanted to be and the husband, the father that I wanted to be that, you know, and then that would have left. Um, but yeah. because we were, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I just want to comment on that for a second because it's the story for so many folks that have served in the army, but specifically in, in what I'd call our recent army. I mean, you came in, I think in one, right? If not at war, we were going to be really rapidly in your career, and most of your career has been at war. And part of soldiering is just the time away to do your work. It's almost like, yeah, the Seahawks, man, they got to go play on Sunday, and they got to go play the Rams. Well, we got to go play the terrorists, and that's kind of what we're signing up for. And I just want to do a call out in this moment to who doesn't go, to the wives, man, um, and to the husbands, if you're a woman serving. Right. And, and because I think as you as you look at and I don't know this to be true. Right. I don't even know your, your wife's name to be totally candid. But maybe it's because of the work that she did that allowed you to continue to thrive. And so I just want to call out for anyone listening who's married to a service member. Good gracious, man. We, we salute you. And we appreciate what you've done because I grew up in a military family and that's what my mom did, man. She labored and served for five kids so that we were at home after school and had a snack and we were there. Mm-hmm. And my dad was at, at the desert storm army. So he had one 100 day deployment and that's it. And that's very foreign to today's military, but it still mattered. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I was just moved to share that as you kind of were going through your story. Continue please boss. Yeah. If, if I can. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. And uh, because it's so true. And my mom, same way, five kids. And uh, that was really my wife, same way. So, you know, and it's ironic because here we are, these kids that grew up in a small town. You know, my dad was in the Vietnam era, but he was in the guard. Um, And so, you know, we grew up with the same people, you know, from the time we were preschool all the way in time we were high school. And then then we left. She went to college. I went to West Point. I never experienced that, man. I was all over the place. Yeah, you're all over the place, right? So, but. See, think about how foreign that was for us as far as how we wanted to raise our families. Katie, my wife, shout out to Katie. She'll listen to this and critique it, you know, in the best way possible because she is just absolutely an amazing woman along with and is the epitome of an Army spouse, military spouse. Uh, they served too. So do my four kids. They've endured this lifestyle and sacrificed far more than I have because, frankly, I signed up for this. Uh, but, you know, and, and then she, she signed up for it too. And we've made every decision together, you know, after before every PCS or every move that we made and, and we were playing chess, we were playing chess, not checkers. Yeah. Um, and so if, if we were going to do this, we we're going to go all in and we're going to do it together and we're going to do it the right way. And I, I look back and, uh, and, and everything that we've endured and what they've endured and I'm just blown away by it. And uh, I just feel blessed to be in a position that we are uh, whole as a family because, there is not easy to do. And, I, and unfortunately, we are the exception. We're not the norm. Um, so yeah. those are some, some of my thoughts there. Shout out to all the Army spouses and military spouses out there who serve and sacrifice. No doubt, man. Uh, and, and so I appreciate that reflection. And, and if I can just kind of unpack what I think I heard from you when we, when we explored this idea of, of why stay in the Army for 20 years, I think you basically said a couple of things. Number one was, hey, Court, it wasn't planned. 
I kind of just allowed life to interrupt as it wills. Um, I, I really had a tremendous desire to be a, a strong father and husband. You were able to continue to do that because you were in conscious relationship with Katie and you guys were together and aligned and making decisions. And I don't know that that couldn't be applied to being a VP at IBM or being a senior VP at Google. I think kind of no matter what you're doing, those things need to exist for a career to thrive. Um, and then I think that you really said that you were just searching for that competitive edge to maintain from your strong desire and exposure to team sport. And you found, in your words, the ultimate team in the Army. So really three themes that really jumped out to me from there and, and appreciate that, uh, that sharing because I think people can get behind that and it gives some great insight uh, to the listeners and to who you are. I'd like to continue uh, the conversation in this moment with a bit more about the Army, but to be a bit more uh, granular focused in, in the inquiry, and that is specifically to your path, right? You, you, you're an Army field artillery officer, right, boss? That's correct. Right, and so so I know what that means. And so in, in a few words, if you could just share with us, I mean, in your bio it talked about, you know, targeting and being, you know, joint terminal air uh, controller, you know, I might have just screwed that acronym up, but basically some insight to what it is to be a field alter, alter officer. And because I, I make meaning in that word because this, this is my tribe. The Army is my people. Yeah. And then I, when I see... You know, you're, you're a, a, a mental performance coach and you have these degrees and all this work. I'm like, holy shit, man, how did this happen? So <laughs> my question, boss, is when, when we look at your career, I think it's non-traditional. I think it's incredibly interesting for me. And I think it's inspiring for others, specifically others that are looking at the Army as this is all you can do. Well, Andy Reese. It will say that, look at my career, and it was a lot different. So I'm just curious, man, given your education, your experience, and your focus in psychology and mental performance with the Army as a field artilleryman, because you're not a psychologist for the Army. You're an FA guy yeah. with these specialties, right? Because right? you can be a psychologist for the Army, right? Mm -hmm. How did this journey happen, Andy? Do you mind taking us through sure. a little bit of it? And, and you, you said, hey, Court, you got five hours? We don't. But <laughs> I would love for you to right. comment on this, man. Yeah. I'll start from uh, – I'll try to go in order here. So going back to when I played football um, at the collegiate level, um, one thing that I found out really quickly, and you can appreciate this, Court, and anybody else who's been an athlete at the collegiate level, every single player that you're competing against uh, and with, is was the best in their high school as far as uh, playing in terms of their physical abilities and their technical abilities. They probably were one of the best in their state. Um, at the time, we came from a national pool from all over the country, so everybody was really, really good. And um, sure. so if everything else on the playing field was, was even physically uh, and even technically, the, the one edge that I found that I, where I lacked was my mental game. And um, it really came into being my sophomore year I switched from being a fullback to an outside linebacker. I was really struggling. I was in my own head. I couldn't get it out of my own way. I was, I was um, and it had nothing to do with my physical ability. You know, I had the physical ability to probably play and maybe even start at that position, even after I switched. But I couldn't get out of my own way. And at the time, because I was struggling, you know, academically, physically uh, on math, I took, I'm a, I'm a rock math graduate at West Point. People listening will know what that is. So there's, at the time, I was working with a very unique center um, that is um, it's a one-of-a-kind uh, all across the university level in the country. 
It's a student support center, which is very common in universities, but the Center for Enhanced Performance at West Point for the last 30 years has taken uh, the evidence-based best practices from sport and performance psychology and also education psychology, and then they've, they've been woven that into the three core aspects or pillars of the academy, and that's you know, athletics, academics, and military develop, uh, the military development piece or, or leader development and character piece. So I was working with them academically on that leg of the stool. Now, flash forward, I'm struggling on the football field. And so I, I started working with uh, an Army officer. At the time, he was Captain Carl Olson. Shout out to Carl, who's now an assistant athletic director at Penn State University. Uh, he, he's a captain, a young practitioner. And we just started working one-on-one -on -one about my mental game and taught me about, you know, confidence despite setbacks and composure in extreme circumstances and about concentration amidst distractions and about being goal-oriented and how motivation works. Um, and so I started, like, getting all this knowledge poured into me that I was now applying to the classroom and, and to the football field. And I, I didn't know it at the time because I was in that survival mode um, and very narrowly focused on this was permeating into who I was as a, as a leader and a human being. And so I took that forward with me and I became commissioned uh, when I graduated as a, as a second lieutenant and a field artillery officer. That was the branch that I chose. And so that was my career track. So all when I was cutting my teeth as a young officer, I was, you know, and I still am a field artillery officer, by the way. And what that is is essentially, um, you know, so first of all, they, they're the uh, orchestrators of uh, warheads on warheads, as I like to say. So, you know, you think of somebody who's uh, in charge of an orchestra, you think of all the assets that we have that are indirect fire weapon systems that shoot bullets from the surface level or they come off of, you know, it comes off of a rail of a plane or a helicopter, um, you know, a big bullet uh, making a big boom. That, that's what I did as the coordinator of that. It's kind of like being a party player uh, <laughs> Absolutely. in a lot of ways. And so, so, you know, I, you know, as I, and there is no track for being a sport and performance psychologist. Well, I hadn't found that yet, um, but we'll put a bookmark there. So I, you know, did two deployments, all the jobs you need to have as a young military officer. Uh, about the 10-year mark, I was in the middle of my second deployment. I was an advisor uh, to the Iraqi Army because there wasn't enough SF guys like you, Court, at the time. And there was a lot of uh, Iraqi security forces that needed to be trained and advised and assisted as they were standing up their army at the, right after the surge, if you remember that, in Iraq. I was up Absolutely. In Mosul, Iraq. I was up in Mosul, Iraq, living out on a combat outpost about a mile from Jonah, remember that the prophet Jonah's tomb where he is buried, I was living about a mile from that, you know, in a, in a shack, you know, uh, with, uh, and somehow we have internet, I'm not sure why, because we're probably there for more than a week. And, yeah, man, uh, it's, the, yeah, it's, it's yeah. the same reason why terrorists have phones. We don't know why, they can't figure <laughs> out plumbing, but they got that's a damn right. phone. Go ahead. That's right, yeah, so to, to be fully mission capable, I had to have internet, right? So, um, <laughs> here I am, I get this email from a Doug Chadwick, Doug, shout out to Doug, because uh, he comes up later. And this is a theme you're going to find. I mentioned Carl mentioned Doug, and these guys come up later when we talk for your listeners. But Doug didn't know from didn't know him from Adam. Sent a mass email out to all these former Army football players who were still have to do. Say, hey, any of you want to come back to West Point to teach? Oh, by the way, we can't send you back to get your master's degree. And you know, at the time, I was you know a year into a 15 month deployment and. You know, I just like, I'm, I'm ready to get out of the Army and get, get off this deployment, just get home. I missed the birth of my second son, Jonah, 
<laughs> ironically, not, you know, ironically, we named him Jonah before I lived next to Jonah. And so uh, I just wanted to get home, meet him, hit the reset button, pull off on the roadside of life and do an asthma check with my wife and family. Like, hey, what do we want to do next? And so, but what, what great opportunity to come on board. And so I immediately shot him a note back and said, hey, hell yes, I, I, I'm in. And so it worked out. I, I came back, started teaching at West Point in the same center where 10 years before I was working as a, as a cadet. And uh, when I came back, um, I and just, Andy, uh, really, yeah. I'm sorry, let me interrupt though. It, it, your audio is a little bit challenging to hear, and I just want to make sure people understand. Can you name okay. that center at West Point again? Because I know you talked about taking advantage of it as a player, and then now yep. Doug, Doug is asking you to come support it. What is it again? It starts with a C, right? Sorry, it's uh, yes, it's the Center for Enhanced Performance or beautiful CEP, or we call it the SEP. Gotcha. Um, keep keep on, man. Yep. Yeah. So at the time, it was. Uh, interesting time because uh, they were expanding and exporting the services from the from the academy out to the army they had six sites uh and i was part of the army center for enhanced performance so this is all the outreach efforts if you imagine all these graduates who are leaving and going out to the army that want the services to help prepare the units to go to combat and mentally you know sharpen their swords and so the army center for enhanced performance was born and so i helped run that and, spoke, and spent most of my time focused on supporting the Army, traveling around, teaching. I worked a little bit within the academy. I taught reading and studying skills, uh, and I worked with the football team and baseball team. But um, really the aha moment for me that really switched on all these light bulbs um, was when I sat through my certification. It was a three-week program, still to this day the best class uh, I've ever sat through in my life where I learned about uh, more of the breadth and depth, uh, the art and science of sports and performance psychology. And uh, I was like, where has this been my whole life? And this is like speaking my language. I love this. This is the future. This is what I want to do when I grow up. And I was so jacked, Court. Like, I was like, you know, I was on fire. Yeah, and, you was uh, in the zone, it, man. Man, I, it just, and it just set me on this path that um, has been truly, truly amazing. But like you said, it, it's been unconventional because there is no, uh, there, there is no career field to be a sport and performance psychologist in the army. There's no such thing. Yeah. So how do you do that? So that's, you know, that led me to a whole another branch of sequel. Yeah. Wonderful, man. I think what I'm hearing from you here is, you know, and, and let me just, let me add some levity to the conversation. You're not alone, at least according to me of this ever kind of assessment of is the army where I want to stay. I think it's natural. I think I think life's a constant state of transition. That's why I I'm a I'm a transition coach because I think it's tons of business out there. Everyone's life is always changing, right? And and how do we do yeah. deal with transition at a high level? And so I, I certainly reflected on the 10 year mark, the 15 year mark, the 12 year mark. You know, hey, do I stay or do I go? Um, but what I think is really interesting that I heard from you is that in those reflections, in those moments, an opportunity came, and you made a decision to take a route. That was consistent with, you didn't say this, but maybe what's most important to you, maybe a core value, maybe something you didn't even identify at that moment, but only when we reflect on it, we can. And because I do this work, that's kind of what's resonating for me. So you made a value-based decision that, and maybe it was even in conflict with some other values, but this was the one that was most important. And then that led you to this other opportunity uh, to teach. And I'd say that's hard, man, at least for me. Like I felt like I always wanted to stay in the fight. And moving into the academic school, 
would be, oh man, I'm, I'm kind of walking away from the fight. And I would say not so fast. You know, we need quality, great people in those environments doing great work. So thanks for sharing that with you. If I could get a little bit of perspective on the positive psychology certification, how did that happen uh, with the University of Pennsylvania? Is that, is that, was Andy on his own building out his portfolio? Was that in conjunction with an Army program? Could you comment on that a little bit? And specifically, how did that then lead to your involvement as one of the first U.S. Army resilience trainers and facilitators for our force? Yeah, it, you know, just a matter of being in the right time and the right place uh, and then leveraging an opportunity. It, so it's 2009, um, you know, there's the, our force was uh, under this pressure cooker because of the constant deployments. And so if you recall, um, suicides were really becoming a big deal. They were declared almost an epidemic amongst uh, service members. And so Congress was poking the, the Army leadership in the chest saying, you need to do something about this. And so General Casey was the chief of staff at the time. He formed uh, an academic task force uh, combined with people from various expertise in psychology uh, that included the University of Pennsylvania. They brought together existing programs that had efficacy and were doing the work in the force, and that included the Army Center for Enhanced Performance, which I was working in. Um, so mm. went down to this uh, conference at, a, at UPenn, um, and, you know, General Casey is talking to all these experts, and I'm looking around, I'm like, what the heck am I doing here? You know, I'm the <laughs> lowest-ranking guy. You know, I'm like, I'm a, I'm a, I must have went to the wrong room because I am the wrong dude that's in here. I do not belong here. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, and I went, you know, we, we, he uncorked this, I, this concept called comprehensive soldier fitness. And, you know, at the time, you know, I you – know, you know, I was, so the, the approach to holistic fitness has been around in warrior cultures for, for millennia, you know, going back to the Greeks and Romans. But the idea about the modern warrior needs to have all these attributes across these domains of human dimension, um, you know, and foremost of those being the mental and emotional attributes and the skills related to that, um, being an integral component of that was totally foreign at that time. I mean, nobody was, you know, we were talking about, you know, uh, psychology and your feelings. I mean, that was the soft stuff people were whispering about behind closed doors. And, you know, and they weren't talking about out loud as mental toughness as being the, the key to optimal performance. Maybe they were in your units, you've been in, but in the big army, it wasn't the case. So here at the time, the uh, positive psychology, um, you know, was one of the components of that, uh, the mental and emotional strength part of comprehensive soldier fitness. Um, we developed, uh, so over the course of about six months, I was part of the, you know, the Tiger team, if you will, which is a small group of people. Um, and I was the, you know, the guy who was representing the frontline dudes, you know, because I'd just come out of combat, a deployment. Um, you know, I'd just been a, a company-level commander, and everybody else was a Ph.D., expert, academic, uh, some sort, maybe a senior leader who's been removed. Uh, from the front lines and so that was my role um, and so I felt an obligation to really get this right and to make something that soldiers actually wanted to get and became skills they would actually use to make them not only bounce back from adversity but make them better at what they do um, and so that's that's what I did in uh, November 2009 had the first master resilience trainer course um, and so uh, that's what I did and it just became uh, a set of tools in my kit bag that I've I've taken forward even to this day. Yeah, absolutely. How, how, good gracious, how important is just being resilient and just life in general? It's, it's critical, bouncing back from setbacks. So 
Really, really interesting to hear about that. I think what, I, what I'm hearing from you is there was a really wicked problem the army was trying to solve, which was suicide. And, and, and there was some really smart folks that cared deeply about solving that problem for soldiers. And they, they introduced this concept and I don't, I won't get it right, but it's like the holistic warrior um, in some way, which, which I think is really interesting because I think that's the key to life is how can we look at our life and the people we care about most uh, about and all of its complexity because all of it matters when we make decisions. And then, you know, you said, Hey man, right place, right time. Uh, and and really something that aligned with what you really care deeply about. So here you are, uh, you know, part of something that that army needed to develop, and, and and you made that happen. I can remember sitting in resilience and training, man. You probably had something to do with the way that was put together. So cool. Um, yeah, and I, I'll just say too, as a caveat, if I can, court is that uh, you know I will say that you know un- unfortunately you know there's. Uh, the way that program was intended has kind of maybe evolved into something, some people hear resilience training and, you know, it's almost become a four letter word, unfortunately, you know, because, uh, you know, I think the way that it was executed and rolled out, you know, could have been better. Uh, I don't want to criticize that program, but I, I will say that was a big reason why I pivoted and moved towards special operations because I felt like they're focused in on using that athlete model of supporting elite tactical athletes, um, you know, from terms of their mentally, emotionally, physically, socially, spiritually, and surrounding them with resources and an integrated multidisciplinary approach, um, you know, in terms of how they train and educate and resource. I mean, that was really to where what I thought was the right way to do that. And that's how I ended up working with the special forces community initially. But the vehicle to get there was as a fire support officer um, sure. and as a JTAC. So anyways. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, cause they still got to find a bullet, a, a billet and a billet is like a slot, uh, on a, on a roster. If I could use that as a term for the listeners. Yep. So, so I, I certainly get that. Um, and Hey man, it's hard. I mean, we're talking about a, a, a an enterprise, a business of 400,000 folks. It's hard to get something out there to the masses in, in, in the best way possible. Cause it's tough to scale. So I get yep. it. Um, and I also get why you ran towards special ops because it's a very small community with, with access, in my opinion, to the very best resources and training possible so that we can do incredible work. Um, so I'm really interested in, in, in talking about that, but I do want to marinate a little bit more here just on the education piece because I think it's, it's interesting for people to hear. And so positive psychology, mental performance slash resilience training, worked for the Center of Enhanced Performance at West Point at some point, and, and then also a master's in sport and performance psychology. Can, can you talk me through how that happened? Yeah, so when I officially signed at West Point, I got selected to go to uh, a special forces group. And, and at this point in time, I didn't have my master's degree. And usually people who go teach at a service academy get a master's degree in route. So they spend two years full-time as a student. It's a great gig for anybody who wants to have the opportunity to pursue that. I didn't have that opportunity. Um, mainly at the time, I didn't want the service obligation associated with that. Uh, but here I am now. I'm, a, I'm teaching and I'm a practitioner and running, a, you know, an Army-wide program. And I'm learning, I'm getting basically a master's through on-the-job training. And I'm, I'm walking with giants in the field uh, and learning from them and soaking them as much as I can given the opportunity to teach, uh, but I didn't have the credentials. I didn't have the piece of paper that said, hey, that I, I'm a certified 
practitioner uh, in, to practice in this field, right? And so uh, anybody can relate to that. It's like having a license. It's like driving without a license in a lot of ways uh, from an academic perspective. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I, and it, you know, and I just needed to have more quality reps. And so my, my mentor is there, uh, specifically Dr. Nate Zinder, uh, who's, a, who's just an original gangster in sports psychology that no one's ever heard about. But, you know, he's like my Yoda. He's like, he was like my Yoda, you know. Uh, he was my Yoda. Bernie Holiday was my Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know. And I'm, I'm the Padawan trying to be a Jedi. And I imagine me sitting down next to Yoda and saying, hey, Yoda, what do I need to do to be a, a Jedi? And he's like, you know. My, put his arm around me saying, hey, you need to go. First of all, you need to go do the work. You need to get the reps out in the field. The second thing you need to do is you need to go back and get your degree. So how do I do that? And sure. here I am. I'm in a, you know, I, I, you know, I didn't go to a, an easy assignment. I mean, being in a special forces unit, as you know too well, having lived this life, court is just a high-op tempo. And sure. um, here, here I am building a special forces battalion from scratch. I'm the fourth guy assigned. And we, we ramp everything up, man, train, equip, and deploy within 18 months. And meanwhile, I, my dumbass signs up for, for a master's degree, you know, because <laughs> I think cause I thought that was a good idea while I'm being a husband and father to four young kids. That's a good idea. Uh, yeah. So I do not advise anybody to do that. Um, but you know what? When things are important, um, you make time and, and, and uh, carve out energy to do it. And that's what I did. And it took three years over the course of two PCSs um, in, in the absolute grind period in my career. Spent a lot of night, late nights. Um, I say that I'm like the poster boy of uh, the late night uh, scholar that you see on those like uh, commercials of the guy, you know, the husband with, you know, sipping on his coffee with red eyes, just staring at the screen, pounding away and yeah. night and then rinse and repeat and do it again. And, and, I, <laughs> and that's what I did. Uh, but that, it was important enough for me that I needed to get that done. Um, and so, and, and it was a great experience because I, it, I had a good context um, and I was able to then apply what I already knew and really get into the, the science and get deeper and broader uh, in the field. And, and that was uh, a big deal to me. Yeah. Uh, as I understand and listen to you here, what I'm hearing uh, on this road to masters uh, in sports and uh, in performance psychology for you, it was one, how can I inform what I really want to do because I feel like this work is really aligned with me um, and my passion and my why? You know, what do I got to do next? And you had a mentor, right? And the mentor said, you got to get the education. And you said, no problem. How do I do it? Well, you did it probably the hardest way possible, which was while full-time working in an organization that asks a lot of you there at 7th Special Forces Group. And oh, by the way, while they're building out what they call their 4th Battalion, and I know a lot of listeners might not understand that, but the war was, which was taking so much out of the force, we had to create fourths of everything so that, you know, when, if the, if, when people deployed, you know, there's someone that can train, someone can actually be at war, someone can recover. And so having a fourth allowed that kind of stuff to happen. So really appreciate the reflection because I think for anyone right now that feels like there's something they really want to do that they have a lot of joy in, but they just can't seem to figure out how to get it done, allow Andy's story to inspire you. He had four kids, married, in the Army, with a unit, going to war, and knocked out a three-year's master's. So I tip my hat, man. Let's continue in this moment, brother, and I want to talk uh, now kind of what you're doing outside of the Army, 
you know, probably with the army informing that work. But I mean, from what I, I covered in the bio, you're, you're a management consultant, you speak, and you're also an author. And so I want to talk about the consultant work and that work as the chief science officer with a company called Mission 60 LLC. And, you know, I know you have a, an active relationship with other consultant companies, but, but to that end, you've worked with professional sports teams, right? Corporations. You've worked with folks in the health industry and even some of our incredible first responders. And some of your clients that you've, you've served with and that you've supported have been the New York Jets, the Las Vegas Raiders, the Minnesota Vikings. We, we knew the Vikings had to get in there, right? That's dad, right? Go Vikings, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. The, yeah, the Minnesota right. Vikings, the <laughs> uh, Seattle Mariners, uh, Pinnacle Agriculture, and Rochester, New York Regional Health. And so my curiosity in this moment is, Andy, what, what is Mission 6-0? And, and so, so what do they do? How do they serve others? And, and, and how do you support that mission? Sure. Um, so it, it's been, a, again, a, a great part of my journey. You remember that, you know, part of my channel at West Point was able to do the work. And so not only do that in the military, but out of the military. Uh, and so I'm passionate about sports. Um, a friend of mine just left Jason Van Camp. Shout out, shout out to Jason, who's the founder and CEO of Mission 6-0. Um, you know, developed this business idea and concept at the time it was called Mission Essential. I became what's now called Mission 6-0. And what we are is we blend the evidence-based practices of special forces and behavioral science. Um, and we, our job is to really uh, train, advise, and assist uh, companies and sports and first responders, corporate side, and the health industry to make them better at what they do. And, and we do that uh, through the process of getting comfortable being uncomfortable, which is something uh, that you relate to. And it's uh, the theme of our upcoming book, which I know we're going to talk about. Uh, my, particular, uh, my particular role is the chief science officer or chief learning officer is to, to help uh, manage um, a stable, really high-performing uh, applied behavioral science practitioners at the master's and PhD level. And they complement our stable or bench of uh, really high-performing special operations veterans that include, you know, two Medal of Honor winners and Leroy Petrie and Flo Grover. Uh, we've got, you know, real-life action heroes like Steve Mueller, uh, who, you know, was the only man to, to be a Navy SEAL, an Army Ranger, and a Green Beret, um, and he's on his path to become a, probably an NFL coach someday. Um, and the list goes on and on of these people who, you know, are humble servants, uh, but have really amazing stories. That can and we, our job is, um, as the behavioral science practitioners is to translate their attitudes and behaviors in a, to the so what um, and the now what um, or the how to for uh, our customers and, and add value as a for-profit company. Uh, so that's what we do and, and that's my role. Awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. So anybody listening, if you're looking for some really kind of maybe non-traditional uh, military flair, special operation, high-end high um, kind of, you know, inject to the business you're running, look up Mission 6-0. Hell, look up Andy and see if there's a way that maybe there could be some sort of partnership there and a value add. Because I think what I'm hearing from you is that you're all about just helping people perform at a high level. Going back to kind of you know, in your bio, you're all about optimal performance. So, uh, makes sense, man. And, uh, and wow, awesome for you to be doing that while you're also still in the army. So, uh, greatly got a guy here that, uh, is, is trying to get it done all the time. And, and Andy Reese, let's talk about this book, man. 
um, that you co-authored and that you are the contributing editor for. Uh, and I'm going to read the title here. It's a long one, so bear with me, folks listening. Uh, the book's called Deliberate Discomfort, How U.S. Special Operation Forces Overcome Fear and Dare to Win by Getting Comfortable Being Uncomfortable. Hey, man, first of all, congrats, right? Book, man. There's a book out there that you've edited, that you've actually wrote, right, as a contributing author. And I think about writing all the time. I feel like there's something that we all have to share with others. If we can just step into that moment and get it on paper, um, but only certain people end up doing it, man. So what an accomplishment. Secondly, tell me what inspired you, man. Yeah, man. No, yeah, no doubt. What, what inspired you, Andy, to participate in this project? And what can people expect to get from this book if they read it? That's a great question. Um, I'll start off with my personal inspiration, uh, which I know you can completely align and relate to, uh, Court. I know the, the listeners will too. Is if you if you hear my story and elements of it, you're going to notice that the times when I've grown, and I think everybody who listened to this can relate to the the things you're most proud of in your life, uh, professionally, personally, uh, have not come easy. Uh, they've been through going through the process of a struggle where you've had to get outside of your comfort zone. You've gone through some sort of adversity. You've had to work hard, trust greatly, love deeply. Um, and through that process of getting out of your comfort zone, you, you've grown. Uh, you've grown mentally, emotionally, uh, socially, spiritually, physically, professionally, and all those, you know, in some or all of those aspects of the human dimension. And I think that we in the special operations culture is unique because, um, you know, you, from the point of the time when, which you can appreciate, you know, from a firsthand experience court is that from the, you were assessed and selected for some specific traits and then thrust into training, education, and a culture uh, and lifestyle that, you know, is all about that crucible of deliberately uh, shaping you as a human being uh, to be this, this sharp instrument for national power, right? Uh, sure, and, to, sure. and to free the oppressed and do all the things that we do and do bad things to bad people. But, you know, there's some things that go into that culture organizationally and individually um, that are lost on a lot of the public uh, that I think, you know, we feel obligated as servants uh, beyond our time in uniform that we need to share with others because they're universal constructs. They're uh, the knowledge, skills, and experience, you know, um, from the, that we've learned, you know, on the home, you know, on home training, to the battlefield, they translate to the boardroom and the playing field um, sure. as we talked about. And if we could do that, not just from a, um, hey, look at me beating my chest, um, cool war story standpoint, but really from a, a humble servant approach and talking about uh, an authentic, the authentic piece from our, not only our successes, but our struggles, um, you know, in and out of, and, and so and from a human approach and then, and then taking those, uh, stories and then translating them back on, you know, from a theme to uh, a skill, a tool, a resource that you can use and anybody can relate to, apply to themselves and their team, and that can then lead to attitudes and behaviors that become habits that can make you better. That's, that's what the book is all about. So the, the process of, of deliberately getting, uh, you know, uh, seeking discomfort and being comfortable, uncomfortable, that's going to help you grow. Uh, we've sure. learned that. You and I know that. That's what the book's all about, man. Awesome, man. Where can we find it, boss? Someone listening right now. Hey, man, I'm all in. I'm listening to this guy, Andy Reese. He's 
he's phenomenal the stuff he's done and oh by the way he's co-authored a book with a bunch of other special operators you mentioned jason uh and probably some other contributors that are in there hey man i'm ready to pick it up and crack the damn thing <laughs> open right <laughs> yeah well you can ask if you're uh, so it launches officially it will be published on february 18th uh of this year just in a, a few weeks pre-orders are available now um you can pick up deliver discomfort uh, in a couple different ways and learn more about it First of all, you can go to our website, uh, www.mission60.com. So it's the word mission, uh, the number six, the word zero.com. Uh, simple Google search there. You can find it on Amazon or wherever you prefer to buy books um, online or in person. And, uh, and again, I hope this is something that uh, it will help uh, you and your teams get better at what you do uh, from about 25 uh, of some of the most incredible and humble servant human beings I've ever uh, worked with and I'm proud to be associated with through this project. Yeah, man. And uh, for folks listening, I know a lot of a lot of my listeners consume this while, while they're in a workout or driving somewhere. Uh, I'll have those websites listed kind of uh, on the handle information for this episode when it's hung so you can find them again. But uh, again, Andy, congratulations, man. Congratulations, because I think this is another opportunity for you to make a lasting impact and difference on others through this work that you're doing for folks. Because again, uh, what I'm hearing is that you're going to argue as you read this book, there'll be some tactical takeaways for you to perform at a high level. That's what I'm about. That's what this podcast is all about. You know, it's what you're all about. And that's why we have just great alignment here on, on kind of this conversation together. So, Hey, I, I would though selfishly like to also get some other, some more great information into kind of the ears of my listeners. I've got a strong following of folks that are in transition right? And, and I mentioned earlier, life's a concentrative transition, and I believe that in my heart. But most specifically, there's some ones that happen in our life that are really important, i.e., I'm looking for a job, right? And I'm looking for a job because I've just culminated 20 years of service in the military, or I, I've just blew my knee out, and uh, I'm a pro athlete, and I'm trying to figure out what skills transfer, what's my identity, how do I find work? So, I mean, I know that you're, you're knee deep in your transition and maybe in some cases further along than a lot of people because, um, you know, I have intimate involvement in that because we partnered together on some of it and, and I'm just about to stay close to you and you've kept me up on what you're doing next. So a couple questions here and you can take it wherever you want, but uh, as I understand it, you're leveraging the U.S. Special Operations Command Wounded Care Program to pursue several different fellowship opportunities. And for one of those, it resulted in teaching at Texas A&M University's Coaching Academy at College Station there. Um, so how did this happen, man? And, and what are you doing for Texas A&M? Do you mind sharing that a little bit with the listeners? Because there might be something there yeah. that someone could, could run with. Absolutely. So you know, it starts with kind of who you are and what you're all about. And with your health court you know, and through the Commit Foundation, uh, and their Pursue Your Purpose program, I, I found out you quit, you know, very quickly and fundamentally who I am and what I'm about. And, and what I discovered was, was the art and science of coaching. Um, that's, that's who I am, um, and that's what I want to do when I grow up, whether that's coaching with athletics or within business or uh, whatever it is. Um, so how do I do that? How do I get involved in, in coaching? Uh, and so I reached out to the simple Google search. It sounds really uh, sounds really silly, 
But uh, I looked up, you know, actually, this is funny because you'll appreciate this. This is directly connected to you. Um, for the listeners out there, so uh, Court is a, a certified executive coach, and I was interested in doing that uh, as I start my own business and I get into entrepreneurship. And so I was asking him, how do you get certified at becoming an executive coach? And so he talked to me about the International Coaching Federation and, and where you can go to do that. And some of them are affiliated with universities. So I just did a Google search of uh, coach, you know, coaching at univers- coaching certifications at universities in Texas. And at the time, I didn't know whether I was going to land in Austin or Houston area. And up, the first thing that pops up is Texas A&M Coaching Academy. And I start reading the website, checking out, I'm like, this thing is really cool. And the more that I dug, the more the cooler it became and the more excited I got. And I just reached out to them, and I did everything that you're not supposed to do. And, and believe me, in this space, there's a lot of people out there that are going to tell you what you should do and not to do. And this is to tell you that it's more about the art than the science. Uh, is that I basically did a whole bunch of bullet points on the bottom of an email, and I shot it to an anonymous email. And, you know, normally it would just go into a black hole, but uh, luckily I had a guy on the other end who referred me to the director and uh, who just is a legend at, at Texas A&M, as I would later find out, and reached out to me and said, hey, let's talk. And then uh, and here I am, you know, uh, six months later, now uh, part of this amazing program that's unique to any university that is really um, – at the epicenter of teaching the art and science of coaching. Uh, and so what the A&M started about six or seven years ago uh, through their College of Education, uh, they partnered kind of with the health and kinesiology department and some others. And so they started off providing undergraduate education for uh, uh, students who want to uh, get into coaching and get uh, an undergrad in coaching discipline. Think, you know, um, nutrition, athletic training, um, organizational leadership, those types of things, and then the coaching academy would help place them into, um, you know, entry-level jobs uh, to really start their journey as coaches in athletics or become administrators or teachers. Um, and then they since have expanded that program. So what I'm going to be doing is spend a couple of days a week uh, at the campus in College Station. I'll be teaching undergrads. The second thing I'm going to be doing is outreach uh, to coaches in practice uh, through the Texas High School Coaches Association. And for those of you uh, who are uh, either whether you're from or not from Texas, you know that, that uh, how big athletics is there. 15,000 high schools in Texas alone. Everything's big in Texas. Uh, so we are <laughs> trying to imagine scaling that enterprise, right? Well, I happen to have some experience doing that. So we're developing our online content and curriculum and a mentorship program for, you know, uh, entry-level coaches along with seasoned coaches. And what I'm really excited about is that because A&M has this long tradition of supporting uh, veterans through higher education and they started off as a traditional military college you know I, I don't know if they're in the same league, uh, they're in the same league like BMI but what they what I'm doing is that I'm helping develop a veterans coaching program for guys like you and me court who are getting out who want to get into coaching either as a volunteer as a professional um, or what have you or a coach in another industry and providing an opportunity now to get educated and trained, but get certified and then find a job. Um, and so I, I'm helping build that out remotely right now. I'm, I'm super jacked about it. Uh, but, you know, it, it, what's, what's the common thing? It all goes back to finding out who I am, what I am about. And, and you were my Sherpa climbing that mountain, of course. So hats off to you, man. 
Yeah, man. First of all, thank, thanks for the uh, vote of confidence, but uh, really interesting here. And so what, I, what I'm taking away from this, um, it, it's, it's surprising and yet it's not. It's, it's Andy just did the work, man, right? And for all my veterans in transition that are listening, all the ones that I'm coaching that may be listening, the ones I'm not coaching that are listening, you, you just got to do the work. And Andy's reflection here is I just did a Google search and I took action. And sometimes that's all it takes, man. No one's coming to help you, right? You got you to figure it out. You got to create a plan. You got you to activate the plan, and you got to be disciplined as you move through it, and incredible things might happen like they have here for Andy. So that's the first point I got to say. The second point is, hey, anybody in sport that's in transition, that's listening, and you want to be a coach, hey, connect with Andy because he's developing a way to do that. And, and the last thing I want to say here is just I want to differentiate the two times in which we use coached here together. I'm an executive coach. I'm a leadership coach, right? That's a, that's a different training pipeline and a different yeah. methodology and a different practice that I use to help people make really good decisions in their life, right? Whether they're working in a company or in this moment, they're in transition. It's all just solving problems on your own. And Andy's talking about sport coaching academy yeah. specifically. So, and, I, you, and, and Andy, you did that. You shared it. You differentiated it. I just wanted to talk about it a little bit more. Thank so, yeah, yeah, man. Absolutely. Anything There's else? Commonalities between the two. I, I was going to say that, yeah, I think, you know, and that's a great point because there are some things that are common between those two. The, you know, it's the application of the art and science of coaching. I think some of the competencies and attributes um, are, are universal, uh, which is part of what we concentrate on. But then there's the application of those skills as a coach that, you know, where you, that you differentiated very well. So thank you for highlighting that because I don't want people right now who are interested in executive coaching for business to go uh, pursue a certification through us because that's not necessarily where, uh, to get, that's not going to get you where you want to go right now, maybe in the future, uh, but not right now. So thank you. Yeah, man. And, and, about your transition i think you lost me for a second am i back i got you yep i got you okay now. i don't i don't know where you lost me so i'll just start all over and i think what i want to want to kind of talk about here is i highlighted this idea that you just got to do the work and put a plan together to transition at a high level like andy did here out of the military but i am just curious is there anything in addition andy you might share with a listener um about your transition and, and what you know, things that you did, what challenges you encountered and how you moved through those that could be helpful for someone right now listening. Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say that I don't have it all figured out because I'm still going through it. And um, so I will say that, um, you know, every, everyone says that every transition is different. It's a, it's a unique thing. And so just understand that as well too, is that I'm still figuring it out. And so the things that I have to say, you know, are, um, you know, I, I may, they may completely blow up in my face, but the point behind that is, is that I am prepared for anything to pivot, you know, even if, because I have a plan and because I started planning early and often, I think everyone that I've talked to has gone before me uh, in transitioning, specifically those retired mentors who have since moved on is, you know, they all have common themes. And so first of all, I had a lot of conversations. There's, um, you know, to collect the intelligence that I need. 
and um, and then create you know the connections between the themes and the messages that people are telling me. And one of the common themes is, hey, start early and start often. So I, I started early. I, I you know it, the army gives you 24 months to transition, and if you're a senior leader, which I will tell you right now, the the transition programs that are out there are not necessarily designed for you, but you need to go take that time to do it because you've got to eat this elephant one bite at a time and you can't do it six months before you can't, you can't do it. You can, but you can't do it effectively. So I, I started eating the elephant, you know, uh, at the two year mark out, uh, back in January, but I, I started thinking about transition for, you know, for about five years now. And so, and that's been a very, and so you see the things with mission six zero and, and my connections that I've had are relationships that I've maintained since I was, I started in the army, you know? So, that's sure. not an accident. And so when it came time for me to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up, I made a plan. I leveraged resources like the Phoenix Foundation, Pursue Your Purpose, other resources like CORE, and who have been my guides and my experts on this journey. You know, so second thing is, you know, start with this or off and come up with a plan. You know, uh, be prepared and execute that plan. Be flexible, prepared to pivot. Um, and I say the, you know, and, and get your family involved. And I think one of the mistakes that guys make is that they, you know, transition can be a very lonely place, almost like command or being a senior leader sometimes in an organization to where you feel like you're the guy at the top and you're kind of wandering through the woods in the dark and, you know, and you got to do it alone. And, and I think that uh, I, I started to make that mistake early on and, like, I would catch my, I would do an asthma check and catch my wife up. And then I, you know, and that was a mistake. And so I, I've done a better job of making sure that my wife and my kids were locked step with me and every step of the journey, every waypoint, you know, um, wasn't the time to allow them to catch up, but they were paced with me as we were going along. So they can help me make informed decisions about uh, where we were going to go, what we wanted to do, um, getting their buy-in, their inputs. Um, you know, was super, it's super, super important. And then, um, and then building in time to be able to recover as well too. And so you're hearing about all the cool opportunities that I have. And, but, you know, I know myself and I know that I tend to chase shiny objects and that can be, you know, I, I've been burnt out and overextended in my life um, and multiple times. So I have to make sure that and part of my plan is building in time for recovery uh, to where I can mentally and physically, you know, uh, reflect, um, really, you know, uh, get healthy, um, decompress a little bit, and then allow me to then pivot and move to the next, uh, the next leg of this journey and whatever career I go into, starting with my fellowships uh, with three great opportunities that I'm, I'm able to do those with a, you know, uh, open eyes and a full heart. Yeah, man. Awesome. A lot of great advice there. And I'm just going to bulletize all the feedback you gave. And it started with have a lot of conversations. What I'm hearing there is network, um, start early, uh, you know, be intentional in your relationships because they may be ones that mature later in your career uh, that help in moments like this. And then uh, co-collaborate with the word I'll say is just stakeholders. And for you, your stakeholders were your family. It might not be that for everybody else. Um, and then yep. self-care, man, invest that time in your own self-care, physical, mental, spiritual, whatever works for you. Cause if not, 
um, you know, it, it's going to have an impact. So thanks for sharing that, man. Super helpful. Uh, if, if nothing else, it's confirming some thoughts that people already have or maybe introducing right. some things that they're neglecting. And I think that's what this is all about, man. As we hear perspectives from others, I don't know that it's ever anything that's entirely brand new, right? But it's helpful because it gives us something that someone's doing that has been successful. So um, I, I got about probably two more questions for us, man, before we wrap this thing up. But uh, sure. I do I do want to talk a little bit about high performance uh, with you because I have such a conviction about inspiring this and others in my work. I think the words for you are optimal performance, but I think we're speaking the same language. And so there's not a better person to ask in this moment as I ask all my guests, you know, what does that mean to you, right? High performance, optimal performance, whichever word you'd like to go with, Andy, but how would you kind of define that in your own words? Yeah, so my definition of, uh, you know, how to use the word optimal performance, I'll explain that, but what a performance is, is that the ability and willingness to use a specific set of skills to execute tasks at the upper range of your potential consistently over time. And that's kind of an academic one, but for the listeners that are out there for our conversation, that's, you know, getting the most out of what you got to be the best. To, uh, so getting the most out of what you got to be at your best when it matters the most. And when I talk about optimal, the reason why I say that is that ultimately, you know, you're not always going to be in these zone or full-life states. And you might be able to study the zone exclusively from the neurology to the behavior for 100 years. And I, and I have a lot of uh, experience working on the zone. But the reality is, is that we've learned in combat is that the enemy gets a vote. The variables are infinitely uh, – going on, and, and you're going to get your ass handed to you more often than you're not, you know, from training to execution and, and playing the game. So the what, what really defines your performance, you know, more often than not is how do you get the most out of what you've got and make the most out of a shitty situation, right? And sure. to me, that's not, that's not peak performance because the peak suggests there's a top and there's a bottom, and, you know, and maybe there's some in between there too. High performance is great, but it's, uh, you know, you're always going to be at high performance. So what I'm talking about is a spectrum um, of, of going from, you know, from choking to balling out. And, and so, and the idea is to move that needle to the right as close to balling out as much as possible. And knowing that if you've got, you know, you're not going to have it every day, right? And, and you and I have had those days on the playing field in business and in life. And if you've only got 70% that day, how are you getting, you know, 60% of that 70% at the upper range of potential all the time? So that's what I mean by optimal performance. Awesome, man. I love it. Uh, and, and I appreciate kind of the perspective you're sharing here because I don't know that I – that I considered it that way in my own, in my own ways. Um, cause I think you're very much tying it to, um, a performance opportunity or a moment. And in some cases we know when that's going to happen. Like for example, a batter who steps into the batter's box, it's time to hit. Right. And he knows that's going to come. There's some predictability there, but in some cases yep. when you have to perform is unpredictable and, and yep. often much more challenging. So thanks so much for sharing that perspective, man, uh, with the listeners here. Um, one more question, man, and I think that I'm, I'll just allow you to take this in really any direction you'd like and maybe even a hybrid, but I continue to be a strong advocate on this show and just in my work for the value of the athletic experience uh, and how it prepares us for life later, professional life, 
and the value of the veteran experience and how that prepares us for really the next life you're stepping into. But in some cases for you, Andy, you've been doing some work in corporate America while in the military and not as many folks do that. So I'm curious, man, when you reflect on your time as an athlete and your time in the military, are there any habits that you take away from that experience that allow you in your life to perform at a high level today? Hmm. Uh, so when we say habits, uh, like specific behaviors that I learned in, um, in sports or in the military. Yeah, either way you want to go with it, man. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I learned over the course, I look back 20 years, I mean, there's, um, I like to try to keep things simple because um, the, the beauty of things that when you're teaching the coach is to keep comp make complex things simple, sort of usable and applicable. So I'll try to make this as simple as possible. I mean, so all of the attitudes and the behaviors, the art and science that I learned, I think, you know, really I, I break it down into, you know, four buckets. I mean, first of all, it's just, uh, self, you know, self-awareness. Um, you know, a lot of these are related to emotional intelligence, which you're very well-versed and trained on court. But, you know, to me, being self-aware and understanding who I am, what I'm about, from a values, purpose, beliefs, my attitudes and behaviors, especially under stress and under duress, um, you know, uh, are super important. Um, and self-regulation is or self-management is the second category too. So knowing what my triggers are uh, emotionally, um, how I emotionally respond in certain situations uh, are super important. Uh, learning how to uh, regulate my emotions and, and control them before they control me learning how to control my physiology, what my body is, is telling me about when it's time to really crank it up versus shut it down, um, or as in the benefits of uh, work and recovery. The third one would be, uh, you know, which we appreciate from the Special Operations Committee, which is, you know, understanding your operating environment and situation. Uh, so uh, awareness of your operating environment, uh, understanding, you know, what's going on around you uh, in terms of human beings and the dynamic and, you know, uh, who are the people that you're working with and seeking to understand them, uh, awareness of who's on your team, um, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, what your role is within an organization, and then how do you, the last thing is then how do I influence that? Whether I'm a leader or I'm a lead, I'm the lead. The archetype of leadership, I think coaching is all about influence. And you can, the first two competencies that I talked about, those first two buckets were really about within self. Those are all, there's knowledge, skills, uh, tools, uh, processes that go into the within the self, and you control a lot of those, not all of them. But anything beyond that in terms of your environment and other people on your team is all about influence, and they influence you and you influence them, and it's a multilateral approach. So I take an inside-out approach and, and influencing others uh, by first uh, seeking to understand how people think and how people act and react is super, super important. Um, and then understanding what you can do to influence others towards common goals as a leader and set them up for success um, through an inside-out approach by leading yourself first, but always putting others in the forefront of what you're trying to do, understanding what your common purpose and goals are and moving towards that. Um, I, I think, you know, when I add all I, – if I were to put that into an equation, you know, in terms of the buckets of those competencies, you can take those competencies – and they apply to every component of the human dimension. Um, and so, like I mentioned, you know, they're, and then they go into the mind, to the body, uh, to the spirit, and to the team. 
Um, and so it's, uh, I, I think that's kind of become my model. Um, I have a philosophy that's built around that. Um, it, it really helps me uh, lead with my practice um, and who I'm aligned with. And that is really, you know, what I just described to you is uh, those competencies and, and, and approaching uh, development of individuals and teams in that way, uh, you know, to, to really be better what they do as a, an individual organization performers. That, that's who I am and what I'm all about. I love it, man. So, so what I'm hearing from Andy Reese here in this moment of, of, of reflection on his, his time being a competitive athlete in college and serving for 20 years as a, uh, in the Army is that uh, there's a couple things he's taken with him that he's applied in various stages throughout his life to enable your high performance, and that is, one, be self-aware. Number two, through that self-awareness, self-manage. And you talked about triggers, which is, a, is an incredible conversation in and of itself. But you have an awareness of what triggers you, and then you're able to manage that when it happens. So that was the second thing. The third thing was an awareness of your operational environment and situation. And finally, you talked about influence, right? How do you take all three of those buckets and then be an effective, positive influence for yourself and the team in which you might serve? So, so thanks for that, man. Last question here, boss, for you. And uh, I appreciate all the time that you've given. And I think it's just an, another opportunity to maybe educate a listener. Um, I think we hear about uh, what it's like to be a mental skills coach, right? I hear it, but I don't sure I really understand what the hell that means, right? Yep. So and I know that, you know, you got crazy opportunities here, man. You're involved with Mission Six Zero, the book you co-authored uh, and edited and was a contributor for. You've got this opportunity with Texas A&M's Coaching Academy and now, you know, with the Colorado Rockies like straight up uh, as a mental skills coach. Am I right? That's something that you're yep. going to do next or if you're not doing already. So congratulations, yep. man. I mean, here, here's another high-level organization, a pro baseball team that Andy is going to be a part of. And so could you in this moment just share with us, what does that mean to be a mental skills coach for the Rockies? Yeah, I, I think the best things are related to is that it's related to what people are more familiar with on the physical side of things. So, you know, you, you think about um, the mental performance coaches would be similar to being like a strength coach. So the, a strength coach is, you know, teaches, uh, you know, human movement um, and essentially, you know, how to build explosiveness and endurance and, and power uh, and prevent injuries, right? And so a mental performance coach, you know, but, you know, it is similar to that. And notice that on the back end of that, you have, like, doctors and counselors. Just like on the physical side, there are physical trainers that keep injured players on the field and do the maintenance side. And then there's doctors that treat injury and illness. The same thing happens, you know, uh, organizationally in professional sports. So you have a, a clinical practitioner who treats pathology, which is a traditional way that we think about psychology. You've got, you know, that same person may be a counselor that deals with, you know, problems or issues but then you got somebody who's teaching the art and science of kicking ass between the years yeah. and, and that's what i I'll, that's what i'll be doing uh with the rockies because you, know, you think about the mental demands of, of sport and in life are so high you know you it's interesting you talk uh, hey you know yogi barrett said that hey uh you know 90 percent of baseball is half mental right you know or you know uh so it's like uh baseball the mental part of it too you think about uh, you know using things like imagery, uh, being goal-oriented, motivation, uh, confidence. Um, you think about uh, composure uh, under stress and pressure situations. You think about focus and concentration, 
or situational awareness. Um, you think about all these intangible attributes that are incredible tools that are part of the baseball player's toolkit at every, at every level, you know, sports for, you know, probably about the last 50 years has really taken that and said, you know what, we're going to treat this like strength and conditioning. Cause there was a time when baseball players didn't work out. I mean, look at Babe Ruth I and mean, he drank and smoked and did, he could knock <laughs> the cover off the ball. Right. You know, but like, yeah. Hey, look, I mean, fast forward, you know, uh, you know, a couple of decades, now you look at, you go into a baseball clubhouse and it looks like a laboratory. You're kind of like, you know, they, they've got not only technology, but all the science behind it. The same, the same thing that we're using to optimize the, the body for the elite athlete, we're trying to optimize his uh, cognitive function and his emotional regulation so he can really kick ass uh, consistently when it matters the most. Yeah, I, I, I think it's uh, fascinating the work that you're doing, I think it's incredibly needed. Um, and I, I mean, my brother played college baseball and he played here at, at North Carolina located at Pembroke and I was at Bragg so I could go to every game. I developed a deep love for the sport of baseball, but also an appreciation for how much of a mental game it is. Step yeah. up to the plate, go ahead and hit a 96 mile an hour ball that's coming at you. And there's a small little window to get it done. And, and, and I would say that I know when my brother was in a slump, it's because he couldn't get his mind right. He had all the tangible skills, right? It's just a mental game. And how about life, like you just said? It's so important to have a positive mindset when you're in an adverse situation. And so um, a lot, I think, people will learn from you, Andy. Congratulations, man. And for anybody listening, if you're beginning to step into this space and have any interest in how can I be a mental skills coach, positive psychology, sports psychology, yes. I'm offering up my guest, Andy Reese, to be someone you could network with and chat with. So Andy, I didn't ask you for your permission, but uh, hopefully you're okay with that. Hey man, I think yep. that's a wrap on the show, boss. Uh, good gracious, tons of incredible gifts that you offered up. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. And I want to invite you to break us out. And the only way we know how to do that, which is with the high performance breakdown. So, hey brother, I'm going to speak the words breakdown on three. I'll count one, two, three, and on three, that's your invitation to give us three claps and that signature boom shakalaka here on the show, followed by anything that moves you in that moment. You ready, man? Let's do it. Let's do it. Hey, my incredible guest, friend, colleague, Andy Reese on season two, episode four, breaking us out on high performance pathways. Andy, breakdown on three, man. One, two, three. Boom shakalaka. Hey, thanks uh, again, Core, for having me. This has been a, a great conversation. Thanks to everyone in your audience who's listening. I hope that uh, I added value to your, your day and your lives. If you want to get a hold of me, uh, please contact me uh, through LinkedIn. Um, it's Andy, A-N-D-Y, Reese, R-I-I-S-E. You can find it on there as well. You also, as you mentioned, you can find uh, more information about our book, Deliver Discomfort. Uh, it comes out February 18th, as I mentioned. Find that on Amazon for pre-sales. Go to our website, www.mission60.com, and you can follow me on Twitter or on social media with hashtag CoachingMatters. Uh, and as always, from my end, uh, I'll see you in the arena. Damn right, man. Thanks, Bros, for closing us out. Hey, and just as a reminder, folks, you can find more episodes of High Performance Pathways at my website, courtwhitman.com, or on any of your favorite podcast handles simply listed as high performance pathways. Now get out there, folks. Consider what Andy shared today. Allow it to inspire you as you move forward and chase high performance in your life. Later. <laughs>